0: section 7 of begin lights of history volume 8 great rulers by john lord this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by k hand gustavus adolphus part 1 1594 to 1632 the thirty years war 1618 to 1648 The Thirty Years' War, of which Gustavus Adolphus was the greatest hero, was the result of those religious agitations which the ideas of Luther produced. It was the struggle to secure religious liberty, a warfare between Catholic and Protestant Germany. It differed from the Huguenot contest in this, that the Protestants of France took up arms against their king to exhort religious privileges, whereas the Protestants of Germany were marshaled by independent princes against other independent princes of a different religion, who sought to suppress Protestantism. In this warfare between Catholic and Protestant states, there were great political entanglements and issues that affected the balance of power in Europe. Hence, the Thirty Years' War was political as well as religious. It was not purely a religious war like the Crusades, although religious ideas gave rise to it. Nor was it an insurrection of the people against the rulers to secure religious rights, so much as a contest between Catholic and Protestant princes to secure the recognition of their religious opinions in their respective states. The Emperor of Germany in the time of Luther was Charles V, the most powerful potentate of Europe and moreover a bigoted Catholic. On his abdication, one of the most extraordinary events in history, the German dominions were given to his brother Ferdinand. Spain and the Low Countries were bestowed on his son Philip. Ferdinand had already been elected King of the Romans. There was a close alliance between these princes of the House of Austria to suppress Protestantism in Europe. The new Austrian Emperor was not, indeed, so formidable as his father had been, but was still one of the greatest monarchs of Europe. And so powerful was the House of Austria that it excited the jealousy of other European powers. It was to prevent the dangerous ascendancy of Austria that Henry IV of France raised a great army with a view of invading Germany, but was assassinated before he could carry his scheme into execution. He had armed France to secure what is called the balance of power and it was with the view of securing this balance of power that Cardinal Richelieu, though a prince of the Church, took the side of the Protestants in the Thirty Years' War. This famous contest may therefore be regarded as a civil war, dividing the German nations, as a religious war to establish freedom of belief, and as a war to prevent the ascendancy of Austria, in which a great part of Europe was involved. The beginning of the contest, however, was the result of religious agitation. The ideas of Luther created universal discussion. Discussion led to animosities. All Germany was in a ferment, and the agitation was not confined to those states which accepted the Reformation, but to the Catholic states also. The Catholic princes resolved to crush the Reformation, first in their own dominions, and afterwards in the other states of Germany. Hence a bloody persecution of the Protestants took place in all the Catholic states. Their sufferings were unendurable. For a while they submitted to the cruel lash, but at last they resolved to defend the right of worshiping God according to their consciences. They armed themselves, for death seemed preferable to religious despotism. For more than fifty years after the death of Luther, Germany was the scene of commotions ending in a fiery persecution. At that time, Germany was in advance of the rest of Europe in wealth and intelligence, the Protestants especially were kindled to an enthusiasm pertaining to theological questions, which we in these times can but feebly realize, and the Germans were doubtless the most earnest and religious people in Europe. In those days there was neither religious indifference, nor skepticism, nor rationalism. The faith of the people was simple, and they were resolved to maintain it at any cost. But there were religious parties and asperities, even among the Protestants. The Lutherans would not unite with the Calvinists, and the Calvinists would not accede to the demands of the Lutherans. After a series of struggles with the Catholics, the Lutherans succeeded, by the Treaty of Augsburg, 1555, in securing toleration, and this toleration lasted during the reigns of Ferdinand I and Maximilian II. Indeed, Germany enjoyed tranquility until the reign of Matthias in 1612. This usurping emperor, who had delivered Germany from the Turks, abolished in his dominions the Protestant religion so far as edicts and persecution could deprive the Protestants of their religious liberties. Matthias died in 1619 and was succeeded by Ferdinand II, a bigoted prince who had been educated by the Jesuits. This emperor was an inveterate enemy of the Protestants. He forbade their meetings, deprived them even of civil privileges, pulled down their churches and schools, erected scaffolds in every village, appointed only Catholic magistrates, and inflicted unsparing cruelties on all who seceded from the Catholic Church. It was under this Austrian emperor, 73 years from the death of Luther, that the first act of the bloody tragedy which I am to describe was opened by an insurrection in Bohemia, one of the hereditary possessions of the House of Austria. In this kingdom, isolated from the rest of Germany, separated on every side from adjoining states by high mountains of volcanic origin, peopled with the descendants of the ancient Slavonians who were characterized by impulse and impetuosity. The Reformed doctrines had taken a powerful hold of the affections and convictions of the people. The followers of John Huss and Jerome of Prague were something like the Lollards of England in their spirit and sincerity. But they were persecuted by their Catholic rulers with a rigor and cruelty never seen among the Lollards, for Ferdinand II was the hereditary king of Bohemia as well as emperor of Germany. At last, his tyranny and cruelties became unendurable, and in a violent burst of passionate indignation, his deputies were thrown out of the windows of the chamber of the Council of Regency at Prague. This act of violence was the signal of a general revolt, not in Bohemia merely, but in Silesia, Moravia, Hungary, and Austria. The celebrated Count Mansfeld, a soldier of fortune with only 4,000 troops, dared to defy the whole imperial power, and for a while he was successful. The Bohemians renounced their allegiance to Ferdinand and chose for their king Frederick V, Elector Palatine of the Rhine, son-in-law of James I of England and head of the Protestant Party in Germany. He unwisely abandoned his electoral palace at Heidelberg to grasp the royal scepter at Prague. But he was no match for the Austrian Emperor who, summoning from every quarter the allies and adherents of imperial power, and making peace with other enemies, poured into Bohemia such overwhelming forces under Maximilian, Duke of Bavaria that his authority was established more firmly than before. The Battle of Prague, 1620, decided the fate of Bohemia, and the Elector Palatine became a fugitive and his possessions were given to the Duke of Bavaria. Then followed a persecution which has had no parallel since the slaughter of the Albigenses and the massacre of St. Bartholomew. The unhappy kingdom of Bohemia was abandoned to inquisitions and executions. All liberties were suppressed, the nobles were decimated, ministers and teachers were burned or beheaded, and Protestants of every rank, age, and condition were prohibited from acting as guardians to children, or making wills, or contracting marriages with Catholics, or holding any office of trust and emolument. They were outlawed as felons and disenfranchised as infidels. The halls of justice were deserted, the muses accompanied the learned in their melancholy flight, and all that remained of bohemian gallantry and heroism forsook the land. Strange to say... The land of Huss and Jerome became henceforth the strongest hold of Austrian despotism and papal superstition. This is one of those instances where persecution proved successful. It is a hackneyed saying that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the Church, and it is true that lofty virtues have been generally developed by self-sacrifice and martyrdom, and that only through great tribulation have permanent blessings been secured. The Hollanders, by inundating their fields and fighting literally to the last ditch, preserved their liberties and secured ultimate prosperity. The fires of Smithfield did not destroy the reformed religion in England in the time of Mary, and the jails and judicial murders of later and better times did not prevent the progress of popular rights or in the extension of Puritanism in the wilds of the American continent. But in the history of society, the instances are unfortunately numerous when bigotry and despotism have kindled their infernal fires and erected their bloody scaffolds, not to purify the church and nourish the principles of Christian progress, but to destroy what is good as well as what is evil. What availed the struggles of the Waldenses in the Middle Ages? Who came to the rescue of Savonarola when he attempted to reform the lives of degenerate Florentines? What beneficial effects resulted ultimately from the Inquisition in Spain? How was the revocation of the Edict of Nantes overruled for the good of the Huguenots of France? And yet the unfortunate suppression of religious liberty in Bohemia, and the sufferings of those who came to her rescue, especially the misfortunes of the Elector Palatine, arrayed the Protestant princes of Germany against the Emperor, and created general indignation throughout Europe. Austria became more than ever a hated and dreaded power not merely to the states of Sweden, Denmark, Holland, and England, but to Catholic France herself then ruled by that able and ambitious statesman, Cardinal Richelieu, before whose tomb in an after-age the Tsar Peter bowed in earnest homage from the recollection and admiration of his transcendent labors in behalf of absolutism. Even Richelieu, a prince of the Church and the persecutor of the Huguenots, was alarmed at the encroachments of Austria, and intrigued with Protestant princes to undermine her dangerous ascendancy. Then opened the second act of the bloody drama of the 17th century, when the allied Protestant princes of Germany, assisted by the English and the Dutch, rallied under the leadership of Christian King of Denmark and resolved to recover what they had lost, when Bethlen Gabor, a Transylvanian prince, at the head of an army of robbers, invaded Hungary and Austria. The emperor, straitened in his finances, was in no condition to meet this powerful confederacy, although the illustrious Tilly was the commander of his forces. But the demon of despotism, who never sleeps, raised up to his assistance a great military genius. This was Wallenstein, Duke of Friedland, the richest noble in Bohemia. The person whom he most resembled in that age of struggle and contending forces, when despotism sought unscrupulous agents, was Thomas Wentworth, Earl of Stratford, the right hand of Charles I, in his warfare against the liberties of England. Like Stratford, he was an apostate from the principles in which he had been educated. Like him, he had risen from a comparatively humble station. Like him, his talents were as commanding as his ambition, devoted first to his own exaltation, and secondly to the cause of absolutism, with which he sympathized with all the intensity that a proud and domineering spirit may be supposed to feel for the struggles of inexperienced democracy. Like the English statesman, the German general was a Jesuit in the use of his tools, jealous of his authority, liberal in his rewards, and fearful in his vengeance. Though greedy of admiration and fond of display, he surrounded himself with mystery and gloom. Like Stratford, he was commanding in his person, dignified, reserved, and sullen, with an eye piercing and melancholy, a brow lowering with thought and care, and a lip compressed into determination and twisted into a smile of ironical disdain. This nobleman had fought with distinction as a colonel at the Battle of Prague, when Bohemian liberties had been prostrated, and had signally distinguished himself in his infamous crusade against his own countrymen. He offered, at his own expense, to raise and equip an army of 50,000 men in the service of the emperor, but demanded as a condition that he should have the appointment of all his officers, and the privilege of enriching himself and army from the spoils and confiscations of conquered territories. These terms were extraordinary and humiliating to an absolute sovereign, yet, at the crisis in which Ferdinand was placed, they were too tempting to be refused. Wallenstein fulfilled his promises, and raised, in an incredibly short time, an immense army composed of outlaws and robbers and adventurers from all nations. He advanced rapidly against the allied Protestant forces, levying enormous contributions wherever he appeared, as imperious to friends as to foes, mistrusted and feared by both, yet supremely indifferent to praise or censure, resting on the power of brute force and his ability to enrich his soldiers. Possessing a fine military genius, unbounded means, and unscrupulous rapacity, and assisted by such generals as Tilly, Pappenheim, and Piccolomini, seconded by Maximilian, Duke of Bavaria, he soon reduced his enemies to despair. The King of Denmark was unequal to the contest and sued for peace. The elector Frederick again became a fugitive, the Duke of Brunswick was killed, and the intrepid Mansfeld died. The electors of Saxony and Brandenburg, the natural defenders of Protestantism and the leading princes of the League, were awed into abject neutrality. The old protectors of Lutheranism were timid and despairing. The monarchs of Europe trembled. Germany lay prostrate and bleeding. Christendom stood aghast at the greatness of the calamities which afflicted Germany and threatened neighboring nations. But the Emperor at Vienna was overjoyed and swelled with arrogance and triumph. He divided among the members of his imperial house the rich benefices of the Church and bestowed upon his victorious general the revenues of the provinces. He now resolved to pursue the King of Denmark into his remotest territories, to dethrone the King of Sweden, to give away the crown of Poland, to aid the Spaniards in the recovery of the United Provinces, to exterminate the Protestant religion, to subvert the liberties of the German nations, and reign as a terrible incarnation of imperial tyranny. He would even revive the dreams of Charlemagne and Charles V and make Vienna the center of that power which once emanated from Born. He would ally himself more strongly with the Pope and extend the double tyranny of priests and kings over the whole continent of Europe. Fines, imprisonments, tortures, banishments, and executions were now added to the desolations which 150,000 soldiers inflicted on villages and cities that had been for generations increasing in wealth and prosperity. In the dark hour of calamity and fears, Providence raised up a greater hero than Wallenstein, a noble protector and intrepid deliverer, even Gustavus Adolphus, King of Sweden, and the third act of the political tragedy opens with his brilliant career. Carlyle has somewhere said, Is not every genius an impossibility until he appear? This is singularly true of Gustavus Adolphus. It was the last thing for contemporaries to conjecture that the deliverer of Germany and the great hero of the Thirty Years' War would have arisen in the ice-bound regions of northern Europe. No great character had arisen in Sweden of exalted fame, neither king, nor poet, nor philosopher, nor even singer. The little kingdom, to all appearance, was rich only in mines of iron and hills of snow. It was not till the middle of the sixteenth century that Sweden was even delivered from base dependence on Denmark. But Gustavus, before he was thirty-five years of age, had made his countrymen a nation of soldiers, had freed his kingdom from Danish, Russian, and Polish enemies, had made great improvements in the art of war, having introduced a new system of tactics never materially improved except by Frederick the Second, had reduced strategy to a science, had raised the importance of the infantry, had increased the strictness of military discipline, had trained up a band of able generals and inspired his soldiers with unbounded enthusiasm and he had raised in the camp a new tone of moral feeling. Not even Cromwell equaled him in divesting war of its customary atrocities and keeping alive the spirit of religion. The worship of God formed one of the most important duties of the Swedish army wherever located. Twice every day, the roll of the drum assembled the soldiers to prayer. The usual vices of soldiers, like profanity and drunkenness and gambling, were uniformly punished. Death was inflicted on any soldier who assaulted a citizen in his house. Even a certificate was required of the chief citizens of any place where troops were quartered that their conduct had been orderly. He never allowed, under any provocation, a city to be taken by assault, a striking contrast to the imperial generals. Nor amid the toils and dangers of war was Gustavus unmindful of his duties as a king. He was one of the most enlightened statesmen that had appeared since Charlemagne and Alfred. He established schools and colleges, founded libraries, reformed the codes of law, introduced wise mercantile regulations, rewarded eminent merit, respected the voice of experience, and developed the industries of the country. What Richelieu and Colbert did for France, what Burleigh and Cromwell did for England, Gustavus did for Sweden. His prime minister is illustrious for wisdom and ability, the celebrated Oxenstiern, through whose labors and genius the country felt no impoverishment from war. He laid the foundation of that prosperity which made a little kingdom great. But all his excellences as a general, a statesman, and a ruler paled before the exalted virtues of his private life. His urbanity, his gentleness, his modesty, his meekness, his simplicity, and his love won all hearts, and have never been exceeded except by Alfred the Great. He was a Saint Louis on a throne, in marked contrast with the suspicion, duplicity, roughness, and egotism of Oliver Cromwell, The only other great man of the century who equaled gustavus in the value of public services and enlightened mind it is not often that christian graces and virtues are developed amid the tumults of war david lost nothing of his pious fervor and reliance on god when pursuing the philistines nor marcus aurelius when fighting barbarians on the frozen danube the perils and vicissitudes of war with the momentous interests involved made lincoln shine amid all his jokes a firm believer in the overruling power that Napoleon failed to see. And so of Washington. He was a better man and firmer Christian from the responsibilities that were thrust upon him. Not so with Frederick the Great and the marshals of Louis the Fourteenth, with the exception of Turenne. War seemed rather to develop their worst qualities. It usually makes a man unscrupulous, hard, and arrogant. Military life is anything but interesting in the usual bearing of Prussian officers. In our own Revolutionary War, generals developed pride and avarice and jealousy. War turned Tilly into a fiend. How cold and sullen and selfish it made Napoleon. How grasping and greedy it made Marlborough. How unscrupulous it made Clive and Hastings. How stubborn and proud it made Wellington. How vain and pompous it made Scott. How overbearing it made Belle Isle and Villers. How reckless and hard it made Ney and Murat. The dangers and miseries of war develop sternness, hardness, and indifference to suffering. It is violence, and violence does not naturally produce the peaceful virtues. It produces courage, indeed, but physical rather than moral, least of all that spiritual courage which makes martyrs and saints. It makes boon companions, not friends. It gives exaggerated ideas of self-importance. It exalts the outward and material, not the spiritual and the real. The very tread of a military veteran is stately, proud, and conscious like that of a procession of cardinals or of railway kings. So that when a man, inured to camps and battles, shines in the modest unconsciousness of a Christian gentleman or meditative sage, we feel unusual reverence for him. We feel that his soul is unpolluted, and that he is superior to ordinary temptations, and nothing in war develops the greatness of the higher qualities of heart and soul but the sacredness of a great cause. This takes a man out of himself and binds his soul to God. He learns to feel that he is merely an instrument of almighty power. It was the sacredness of a great cause that shed such a luster on the character of Washington. How unimpressible the victories of Charlemagne disconnected with that work of civilization which he was sent into the world to reconstruct! How devoid of interest and grandeur were the battles of Marston Moor and Worcester, without reference to those principles of religious liberty which warmed the soul of Cromwell! The conflicts of Bunker Hill and Princeton were insignificant when compared with the mighty array of forces at Blenheim or Austerlitz. But when associated with ideas of American independence and the extension of American greatness from the Atlantic to the Pacific, their sublime results are impressed upon the mind with ever-increasing power. Even French soldiers have seldom been victorious unless inspired by ideas of liberty or patriotism. It is ever the majesty of a cause which makes not only great generals but good men. And it was the greatness of the cause with which Gustavus Adolphus was identified that gave to his character such moral beauty—the same beauty which exalted William the Silent and William of Orange amid the disasters of their country, and made them eternally popular. After all, the permanent idols of popular idolatry are not the intellectually great, but the morally beautiful, and all the more attractive when their moral excellence is in strong contrast with the prevailing vices of contemporaries. It was the moral greatness of Gustavus which has given to him his truest fame. Great was he as a military genius, but greater still as a benefactor of oppressed peoples. Surely it was no common hero who armed himself for the deliverance of Germany, which prostrate and bleeding held out her arms to be rescued from political degradation, and for the preservation of liberties dearer to good men than life itself. All Protestant Europe responded to the cry, for great interests were now at stake, not in Germany merely, but in the neighboring nations. It was to deliver his Lutheran brethren in danger of extermination, and to raise a barrier against the overwhelming power of Austria, that Gustavus Adolphus lent his armies to the Protestant princes of Germany. Other motives may have entered into his mind. His pride had been piqued by the refusal of the Emperor Ferdinand to acknowledge his title as king. His dignity was wounded by the contemptuous insolence shown to his ambassadors. His fears were excited that Austria might seek to deprive him of his throne. The imperial armies had already conquered Holstein and Jutland, provinces that belonged to Sweden. Unless Austria were humbled, Sweden would be ruined. Gustavus embarked in the war against Austria, as William Third afterward did against Louis the Fourteenth. Wars to preserve the balance of power have not generally been deemed offensive, when any power has become inordinately aggrandized. Pitt upholds Napoleon to rescue Europe from universal monarchy. So Gustavus... Deeply persuaded of the duties laid upon him, assembled together the deputies of his kingdom, the representatives of the three estates, and explained to them his intentions and motives. I know, said he, the dangers I am about to encounter. I know that it is probable I shall never return. I feel convinced that my life will terminate on the field of battle. Let no one imagine that I am actuated by private feelings or fondness for war. My object is to set bounds to the increasing power of a dangerous empire before all resistance becomes impossible. Your children will not bless your memory if, instead of civil and religious freedom, you bequeath to them the superstitions of monks and the double tyranny of popes and emperors. We must prevent the subjugation of the continent before we are reduced to depend upon a narrow sea as the only safeguard of our liberties. For it is delusion to suppose that a mighty empire will not be able to raise fleets, if once firmly established on the shores of the ocean then taking his infant daughter christiana in his arms he recommended her to the protection of the nation and bade adieu to the several orders of the state amid their tears and sobs he invoked upon them and his enterprise the blessing of almighty god then hastening his preparations he embarked his forces for the deliverance of germany It was on the 24th of June, 1630, just 100 years after the Confession of Augsburg, that Gustavus Adolphus landed on the German soil. End of section 7